Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. My name's Tim Coe. And I'm Dr Sean Stevens. And today we're talking to Dr Paul Effler, the medical coordinator for the Communicable Diseases Control Directorate about influenza, the 2016 flu season um, and flu vaccination. Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. I'm a physician trained in the United States, uh, ultimately went on to do uh, service in the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC, and I've been in public health since that time. About eight years ago, I moved uh, to Australia with my Australian wife uh, from Hawaii, and we've been here ever since, and I run an immunization program and do some other stuff in communicable disease control here. Fantastic, and thanks for spending time with us today. So, um, Paul, uh, people are saying the 2016 flu season's worse than usual. Uh, We seem to hear that every year on TV. Um, Can you tell us, is that true? And what more can you tell us about this season? Sure. Well, actually, we started out fairly light in 2016, and what we've noticed is just increased activity in the last few weeks. So from looking at the data now, it it would appear that we're up to the levels of uh, respiratory hospitalizations that we saw in 2012, which was considered a a heavy flu season, so probably higher than the seasons that followed that. Um, But I do think we're on the wane now. I think we're starting to come down here. We're in early September, and all the indicators are that uh, we've passed the, the peak at least. Do you reckon the long, cold weather is a factor in it, or...? Uh, could be, but I always say you've seen one flu season, you've seen one flu season. They always <laughs> come out different than you anticipate, um, and so it's really hard to say what factors contribute to a heavy season. We have some ideas, but they're mostly speculation. Hmm. And we've got the 2000, we've had the 2016 flu vaccine, the quadrivalent vaccine, which we've been distributing very busily in general practice. Do you reckon it's been a good match for the prevalent strains out there? The available data would say that it has been. Cause so we send isolates in and they ultimately are tested against to see how closely they match what was in the vaccine. And not a lot get done every season, but that data coming out of Melbourne suggests that we've had a good match with what's circulating uh, in Australia this year with the vaccine. So what kind of sort of mark on, you know, if you were to give a percentage, what are my chances of, of the flu vaccine covering the prevalence strain? Well, I think it's important for everyone to understand that the flu vaccine is probably about 70% effective at preventing influenza. Because I do hear clinicians and others say, well, I had the vaccination and then I got the flu. And that can happen. But given it's uh, relatively easy and inexpensive, a 70% chance of not getting the flu seems like a, a good deal to me. And that's why I get vaccinated every year. Yeah, and that, that is the most common feedback we hear when you hear the resistant people. It's, oh, you know, I had it that year, I got the flu, you know, why would I do it now? So it's, it's, it's I think, talking through those percentages and explaining that detail to patients. And, and sometimes on that point, they're, they're confused because they actually get another respiratory illness that looks a lot like the flu, and they just assume it's a flu, or perhaps someone tells them it's a flu without doing any testing. So the influenza vaccine won't protect you from the myriad of other vi- respiratory viruses that circulate in the winter. And people need to understand that. Yeah, mm, that's a it's a frequent conversation I certainly have with my patients. Um, do you know what the uptake of the flu vaccine was like this year, Paul? So we do a survey at the end of the flu season every year, and that data is not available. But what I what data at this point? But what I can tell you is we shipped about the same number of doses, maybe slightly more than last year. So on our order, four hundred thousand doses went out uh, through this uh, state's uh, program. So that's, that's about what we ship in other years. So we assume that reflects uptake because doctors probably go through their stocks, get, get kind of low and, and reorder. 
Um, and then the young children, we have data going into the Australian Childhood Immunization Register, so that we can actually see in real time. And it looks like we're on par with last year at about 10%. And that is a bit sad, actually, because we know that young children, especially ki kids uh, two and under, get hospitalized at several times the rate of e even the elderly. And we have a vaccine in the state available for free, and we don't see the uptake that we'd like to. How much do you put that down to the um, scare we had with the flu vax a few years ago? 2009, yeah. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a big factor because what we had before that was about 40 to 50% uptake in children in this age group, kids under five, and then, so the drop-off followed that and hasn't come back. What's Where I think there's hope is that when we interview parents, basically, if their provider recommends it, if the GP recommends it, they're very likely to do it. So I think where we need to go uh, work going forward is really about uh, GPs' perceptions that the vaccine is safe yeah. and effective in young kids, because that will be the trigger to get public confidence, parent parental confidence back. And uh, we certainly try every year. We we follow the vaccine, although we know it's safe. We monitor it and we put out bulletins just to reassure GPs and, and parents so that they can uh, do what's right to protect their kid. Mm. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's definitely a fair comment. Um, so when we see a patient with an influence-like illness, so say fevers, myalgias, etc., should we be doing swabs? Um, it wouldn't be my advice to swab everyone with a respiratory illness like that because it's a, a lot of resources and potentially won't change your management. So I would think testing would be most appropriate in people that have a severe illness or at risk of severe illness. Um, because that might change what you do. You might decide to go early with antivirals even while the uh, lab test is cooking if it looks like a flu illness and they're uh, a high-risk patient. Otherwise, I think you know testing everyone, as I said, takes a lot of resources and if it doesn't change what we do as far as treatment, um, it, it probably is not indicated a good use of medical resources. Yeah, and you've just preempted my next question, which is, you know, we know these antivirals are out there. You know, when when should we use them, and are they? How effective are they? So, if you're going to use them, use them early in the illness, because the way they work, they prevent the the virus from breaking off a cell after it's after it's invaded it and replicated. So, once that process has already been going on for a while, the antiviral is not going to do any good. So if you're gonna use it, I, we say at least within 72 hours, but if you look at the data, the closer you get, the better. And so outside of 72 hours, they're probably not gonna do any benefit. And, and when you look critically at the data, um, basically they can help make the illness a little bit more mild and shorten duration a little bit, but I tend to think that the best use of these is, again, in the high-risk patients, mm -hmm. the ones where you wanna do everything you can to make sure they don't go into uh, respiratory failure, uh, or develop a subsequent pneumonia, pneumonia, and that's where I would really be putting the emphasis for uh, antiretrovirals for flu. So I remember in 2009, sorry Paul, um, there was talk about resistance to antivirals and um, so forth. Is that an issue? with? That's using? not an issue this year. We no longer use the ones that, uh, the uh, M-channel blockers, uh, the amantadines, we no longer use those routinely. So uh, you can anticipate that the, uh, the ones we have now, the neuraminidase inhibitors work. Mm. Yeah. Good. Um, so now that we're going into summer, should we wait until the next vaccine comes out for pregnant women or should we still be going with 16? Well, it, the official advice is that it, you can vaccinate pregnant women who haven't been vaccinated in the season until the vaccine is no longer available or expires on its uh, expiration date. And so that will typically be uh, at the end of October. Um, if the, it, 
I guess I'd really, obviously, as we come to the downside of flu season, the risk of a pregnant woman being exposed is low, because, but because they are the highest uh, group uh, for vaccination, the highest priority group, I would still vaccinate a pregnant woman if I saw her today, if, for instance, if she came in the office. Um, what, what's more of a challenge is if folks are going to go to the northern hemisphere when they're having their flu season and we don't have a, a vaccine available. So obviously you would vaccinate with our vaccine if it was still uh, within its expiration date and they were going up north hoping that there would be some protection against the strains that are going to circulate up there, but no guarantee. But you raise an issue I'd, I'd love to mention is that, as I said, pregnant women really are, should be our focus. And we're doing well here in WA with influenza vaccinations. We think we're getting about 60%, but obviously we can do better. There's 40% that aren't getting it. And the data is strong. It's showing that it keeps pregnant women from being hospitalized themselves and keeps their children from, uh, their infants under six months of age from being hospitalized too. And we have local data to support that, which we've published recently uh, in international journals. Uh, so I would really encourage every GP out there to uh, remember that if you're seeing a pregnant patient, one of the biggest things you can do, easiest things you can do to protect their health during flu season is make sure they're vaccinated. Great. Fantastic. Actually, you talk about something important, which is this idea that the power of a doctor's recommending a flu vaccine. How often do doctors recommend it for themselves? When did, how, what's our rate of uptake for doctors and staff? Uh, absolutely, a, a good point. So you are right, in every study we do, whether we look at it's uh, parents and their young kids or whether we look at it's with pregnant women or others, the GP recommendation is the most important factor that comes up repeatedly. And in the models we run, it's about 10 times more important than any other single factor. The, the patient's education level, their income, you know, it's what their, what their trusted GP tells them. So. Uh, it's important that we get this out. But we could be doing a better job of practicing that medicine on ourselves. I don't have data on how many GPs and their staff are vaccinated, but I can tell you in health service, because we supply the vaccine to the hospitals, we're looking at about 45, 50% of the health practitioners being vaccinated. So there's obviously some that believe in it and do it, but we can do better. And I think it's important for clinicians to remember, for in their case, they're seeing uh, medically at risk patients. And so they also have a duty not to get flu so they don't pass it on. So we're kind of uniquely uh, indicated for getting an influenza vaccine and I'd really like to see us uh, practice our medicine. Yeah, look, I mean, you're right. We're in the front line, we're copying it. And uh, you know, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's great to hear that the 60% the rate's probably pretty good, but gee, you wouldn't want to be one of the 40% in, in a heavy year like this year when you're getting exposed all season long, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, you know, the reason people don't get vaccinated a lot of times is inconvenience or misperceptions that the vaccine actually gives them the flu. And I think that's important to talk about as well. When you get vaccinated with the flu or many, almost any other vaccine, your body mounts an immune response. And that immune response causes you sometimes to get a low-grade fever, to get chills and, and be achy. Well, that's just your immune response kicking on, so, saying I've, I've responded to these antigens and I'm going to be ready when, when, the real, when the real pathogen, the live one, comes around. So we need to make sure patients understand that that isn't a uh, serious reaction. Those, those, those things that I described are actually an indicator that the vaccine's doing its job. So the patient needs to embrace the febrile reaction and celebrate it because they're getting an immunogenic response. Within limits. Now, obviously, older patients tend to get febrile less often. Children mount fevers to almost any challenge. So usually we see the fevers in younger children, but any person can get those chills and achiness and feel tired. That's not necessarily a bad thing. 
Paul, that's a great discussion. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, and thank you uh, for tuning into The Good GP. Um, next episode, we're going to be talking about the Zoster vaccine, uh, meningococcal vaccines, and the Zika virus.